Please fasten your seatbelts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. How do you guys handle if you're planning a trip and a State Department warning pops up right before? Does that change things? We expect there to be, in the next 12 months, someone firing some rockets at the US Embassy in the Green Zone in Baghdad. We're expecting there to be a bomb, sadly, in a, in a Shia area of Kabul in the next six months. So there are certain things that are, have happened and we expect them to continue and we work around that. Welcome to another episode of No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. I'm Tim. And we got a really special episode for you guys today. James Wilcox is with us. James is the founder of Untamed Borders, a company that brings travelers craving real adventure to some of the most inaccessible places in the world. He helped pioneer tourism in Afghanistan over a decade ago. And he's going to be talking to us about how tourism even works in the world's most remote and dangerous countries, the ethical concerns of bringing travelers to a potentially struggling country, and what it's like working with Afghanistan's first female tour guide. It's one of our favorite conversations we've had so far, and we think one of the best episodes of the season. That's right, Evan. I actually can't wait to get in this because I think what uh, James and Untamed Borders do is the no blackout dates mantra to a T. It's it's traveling to places fearlessly. It's traveling to places that are not the typical places to go, that aren't easy to go or easy to understand. And it's the type of travel that the world needs more of. Yeah, exactly. And we're really excited to get into that. But first, hot takes. I got a question for you, Tim. On topic here, have you ever felt uncomfortable while traveling? either due to safety concerns or ethical concerns about being in a destination, maybe in a place where the government is uh, a little questionable? The closest I've had to that was Cambodia. I would say immediately, you know, I traveled into Cambodia on a bus from, uh, from Saigon. And immediately upon arriving in Phnom Penh, there's just, there's an air in the, there's just a vibe to the city. And I felt it all over the country, actually, that I've never felt anywhere else that you can just tell the people uh, since Pol Pot have just been through so much and they've seen and experienced and dealt with so much more than I could ever even comprehend that I, I was unable to feel like myself the entire time I was there. I still had a great time there and I want very badly to return to both Phnom Penh and the larger country as a whole. But that was the one I had a feeling there that I've never had anywhere else and can't perfectly put into words. The only other time I felt particularly unsafe probably was uh, in Vietnam. I was on a, a bus with my wife and several other people, and right in front of us, a motorist was struck and killed on a moped. So we literally, like, watched it happen. Wow, you never told uh, me that and before. That, that was, yeah, that was a jarring experience uh, to see. Uh, and, and honestly, like, after experiencing the, the street culture of Hanoi and Saigon and how hectic it is on the bikes, I understand that there's an organized chaos to it all, but this was out in the country, and it, it honestly didn't surprise me to see that happen. Wow. I'm surprised that story hasn't made it on the podcast before. 
I, I know. I, I have to say, maybe I just block it out because it it's not a pleasant memory. It's so traumatized you that it took you this long to get over it and to be able to actually verbalize it in public. So this is good. Yeah. Good for you. We're healing together. Yeah. So my question for you, Eben, um, looking at the destinations that Untamed Borders has traveled to or just continues to travel to, I know you've been to Saudi Arabia. They go to pretty much all of the stands, China, India. Is there a place that you haven't been to that you're so curious about that you really want to go to because you know that you're not going to understand it until you get there? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I'm actually looking at their their list of itineraries right now. I We talk a lot about Afghanistan. Uh, and we, he, he, They go to Iraq. They go to Syria. They go to places that are, you know, if you're in the U.S., you watch on the news, you consider these places to be, Oh, they're just war-torn countries, and they're dangerous. You're going to get blown up if you go there, which obviously isn't the case. But after our conversation, I kind of want to go to Mogadishu. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. You'll, you'll understand you'll, this You'll later understand in the why episode. that's, you know, maybe crazy to say when you listen to the episode. But Mogadishu is the capital of Somalia. Uh, apparently, they have really nice beaches there. Um, not, not typically considered a tourism destination for obvious reasons. It's been an ongoing civil war for the last few decades. But... It's just one of those, I think he's talking about places where they have no tourism infrastructure, that you're not going to be walking in crowds of tourists, you're going to feel like you have a really authentic experience, and a place like Mogadishu that is not just has seen a lot in the past and gone through a lot in the past, but is still going through a lot, I think a place like that, assuming it can can be done safely, is would be fascinating, honestly. And it has nothing to do with the risk of danger. That's a huge deterrent for me, actually. It's just the the idea of going to a place that's so far removed from, you know, the Western European destinations that I normally might gravitate towards. I think, I don't know how to ski, but the idea of skiing, they do ski trips in Afghanistan. That sounds really cool. I think that's not a place that most people consider to be a ski destination. So that would be incredible. I'm sure as a skier, you would love to do that too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's two that come to mind immediately for me. A, I would say, uh, uh, Libya or no, excuse me. A, I would say Lebanon because just a couple of months ago, I was standing at the border of Israel and Lebanon. Uh, you know, there's armed guards all over the place and, I felt like just a few feet away from me was a completely different life experience uh, that I, I didn't get to, to do. So I would love to go to Beirut. I would love to go to around Lebanon and more of the Middle East. Um, beyond that, I would love to go to China. I know China is a pretty well-traveled country, but I just think that in the current state of the world and, and, and they're rising as perhaps an uh, uh, equal if not soon to be superior world superpower to the United States, I think it, it's important for people, and I'm speaking of this for myself, to kind of understand the worldview uh, from the other side. Like I, I'm fascinated every time I read the South China Morning Post, which is based in Hong Kong, so it's it's independent news, but they definitely report on China from a non-U.S. standpoint, and it's so different than what you see in the New York Times. Well, Tim, maybe we'll go on a uh, untamed borders trip together. Maybe that's what 2023 holds. I'm looking at the list right now, man, like Libya or Yemen. Yeah. One of those would be fast. Yemen 2023. Spring break. Let's make it happen. Yemen 2023. Well, we will get into it with James, and we'll see you guys on the other side. 
James Wilcox is the founder of Untamed Borders, a unique travel company bringing people to the most hard to reach places in the world. He's an expert on tourism in places that many of us have never even considered tourism destinations, and we're glad he's here so that we can have a conversation today. James, welcome to No Black Updates. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah, anytime. So, so to start off, what kinds of places does Untamed Borders consider to be untamed? How does a place make the untamed cut, I guess? Um, that's a good question. I mean, what we like to think of is that we um, we organize stuff that people would find difficult to organize themselves. And that can be for a number of reasons. It can be because of permits or visas or documentation is really hard. It can be because there's an increased security risk or a perceived security risk, or it can be some uh, in a very remote area. So you need logistical support to do it. And so the area that we work in kind of stretches from the subcontinent through Central Asia, the Middle East, uh, parts of the Caucasus and into North Africa, East and Central Africa. And within those areas, there's a lot of remote places. There's a lot of places with a lot of bureaucracy and there's a lot of unstable places. And so that region, uh, that region fits us. Uh, we started working in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And now we cover a lot of areas, including uh, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, Somalia, uh, Sudan, South Sudan, just all sorts of places uh, across that region that are fascinating to visit, um, but you probably would need a little bit of support to do. They're not so easy to do independently. How do you go about addressing some of the concerns that people have uh, regarding visiting a place like Afghanistan in particular uh, that is so top of mind for Americans? Um, and how do, you, how do you address things that they're saying or perceiving that may be false? I mean, for a first thing, you can't convince somebody to go to Iraq or Yemen or, um, or, or Syria. If they don't want to go, you can't convince someone to go. It's just not possible. Um, if people have got um, concerns, if people have got safety concerns, then we'll address what we consider to be the risks and we'll, look at, we'll just look at what we do to reduce those risks to what we think is an acceptable level. And if people are happy to travel, um, then they'll travel with us. Um, I mean, I mean, an example is when we used to work in uh, in Afghanistan under the previous government. You know, there was a risk of traveling between cities. Uh, you know, if there was an illegal checkpoint, if there'd been illegal checkpoints, we would that would be a red flag. Um, we wouldn't stay in the top end hotels because they have high profile targets in those hotels. So if they're going to be attacked, obviously our people are going to be in the same place we would um, reduce the number of people that know about our movements. We would make sure that none of the details of the trips we have are in the public domain. There'd be a number of things we would do to reduce individually each aspect, um, to reduce it to what we were, we would consider an acceptable level. And if uh, the people that traveled with us felt the same, then that's fine. And if they didn't, then they didn't have to travel with us. It was sort of fairly simple. Has, have you had any issues? Have you run into any problems when guiding people around some of these countries? Like, have, Although you take precautions to make sure that nothing bad happens, does anything ever happen? I mean, we're, we're an adventure travel company, so we work in places where, um, you know, certain standards are not the same as they are perhaps in North America or, or, in, or in Europe. So we've had road traffic accidents. We've had someone have their tooth kicked out by a horse. We've had like uh, these kind of things. We've been in cities when there's been um, 
bombs, where there's been attacks, where there's been things like that. We haven't been the, uh, the focus any of that in the 14 years that we've been working. Partly, I think, um, because it, you've got to be quite unfortunate to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, even in somewhere that seems from the outside to be extremely dangerous, partly because the areas that we choose to work in are not as dangerous as people might think they are, and partly because, as I said, we take a lot of precautions to try and avoid being in the wrong place at the right time, to minimise the amount of time we're in places where um, there's a greater risk of attacks. So the short answer is no, but of course we've had guests in cities when there's been major incidents. And do you think it's important for people to go, like what, what do you think is the value in going to a place like Afghanistan, like Syria, over going to the typical tourist destinations, like going to Bali, going to Paris? What do people get out of it that they can't get in the more mainstream destinations? I think one thing about when you visit somewhere that's not set up for tourism, you don't see a place through uh, the prism of tourism. You see it as I mean, authentic is a strange word, but like as an authentic experience as you're likely to get, there isn't stuff that's set up for tourists in in Afghanistan or in uh, in parts of Yemen. There just isn't. And so when you go to the markets, it's not like you're going to a a market that's set up for tourists. If you're going to a, a UNESCO site, you're going to be the only people there. Like you haven't got um, a, a town that's set up directly for tourists. So you get this very kind of raw and authentic experience. And even the interactions you have as well. I mean, you're meeting people that rarely vis- see people from outside, certainly not tourists from outside their country. And so those interactions are much more powerful as well than, than you would have with, say, a souvenir seller in Paris or in Las Vegas. You get these really kind of authentic, powerful experiences. And that sits... Um, with the uh, with the tourists it also sits with the people we visit and because we are one of the few people that operate in some of the countries we do there's a greater responsibility for us if you go and like you know organize an irresponsible trip to paris well i mean that city sees like a million two million three million four million tourists a year it doesn't really matter whereas if you do the same thing in a place which rarely sees tourists you're setting the tone for um international people to come for you know years to come so it's 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 a it's really important that we do it in the right way. And you noted the uh, prior Afghan government. How has it changed now with the Taliban back in charge? Is there anything that people can't go to that they could before or the vice versa? How has that shifted? So we, we resumed uh, trips uh, a few months back uh, in Afghanistan. So it was one that we started working there in 2008. So for... Um, we've been working there for 14 years and yeah you've seen a lot in that time <laughs> we've yeah we've done a lot we've done a lot of different stuff in that time and um i'm not um I, what i'm about to say is not saying one government is better than another because there are huge aspects of the current government that are i i, I don't agree with uh certainly um the educational and, and uh, rights of, of, of women in Afghanistan are something that were much better under the previous government. However, generally speaking, safety is much better with the current government. The primary reason for that is the greatest uh, anti-government group uh, for the previous government was the Taliban, and they're in charge now. So they're not going to be blowing themselves up. So you've got, they are, they are running the show. And so there are vast swathes of the country in the center, in the south, in the east that we just couldn't visit before because the security was so bad, which we can visit now. So much more of the country is accessible. 
and the kind of bureaucracy that we sometimes saw before has has lessened a bit as well so in many ways it's an easier country to travel around um so yeah in 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 some ways the new government um has has reduced some of the risks um that we face in afghanistan and what is their attitude toward tourism i mean do they encourage it do they are there are a lot of restrictions in place now that there weren't previously under the taliban I would say the most surprising thing is the ambivalence that they have to tourists, that it's just not that important. Um, and it depends a little bit exactly on who you meet. But it, it, generally speaking, um, it's a case or it seems to be a case of that's fine. If people want to come and visit, that's fine. Um, we don't think it's super exciting but we don't think there's any problems with it you know if you want to do it do it like it's okay but be uh be be good guests and that's very much a uh um an afghan thing um hospitality is extremely important if people visit that's great and you're more than welcome and enjoy the country um but you've got a responsibility as a guest and what that means um (laughs) depends on your viewpoint but i think that uh that yeah but generally speaking you're welcome to come but no one's particularly interested one way or another so so as a guest they might not be particularly interested in who's coming and who's not coming but you worked with uh, fatima who is the country's first female tour guide and as a woman being in that profession under the taliban in afghanistan has she run into any issues i know that she had to leave and was in Italy for a while. I'm not sure if she's still there. Is there a special consideration she needs to take for her own safety? And how has the government kind of impacted her ability to do her job? I mean, when the when the new government took over, um, there were a lot of people that were potentially at risk, at, at risk and potentially at risk. And uh, Fatima was one of them. As you said, she was um, the first uh, female tour guide of Afghanistan. Um, she started doing that herself we helped sort of develop some of her skills and she was seen as being extremely at risk and was evacuated to italy in uh, august of 2021 and i don't i mean she would not be allowed to do that work currently within afghanistan as far as i can see um the the rules of what people are allowed and not allowed to do are slightly vague and are um, interpreted in different provinces in slightly different ways. We would love to try and explore that and to see how we could um, work within the current parameters to enable um, a greater diversity of people to work within the tourism industry. How that would be at the moment, I don't know. It's still baby steps for us. Um, as far as Fadim is concerned, she's left. She's studying in Italy. Um, I don't think she's got any plans to return immediately. Her family is still there. I mean, she misses her family. She would like to return to see them. But at the moment, um, she doesn't feel it's safe enough for her to return um, because it's very unstable. It's very unknown exactly whether, you know, in months down the line, retribution would be taken on somebody that had done that kind of work. At the moment, it appears not, but it's still a very uncomfortable place for people to work um, if they had links to the previous government or did things that the current government um, feels are um, 
unsafe or no, the current government feels are not appropriate. Do you feel at all that by going to Afghanistan and bringing people there, you're legitimizing that uh, outlook on Fatima or on other women that are now no longer able to live the lives they were before? Or is it more that, because I could see it both ways, more that you're opening people's eyes to something that's completely different that they've seen and perhaps driving change through that, uh, through, through broadening the perception of what's actually happening there? I see it in both ways. It's not a case of... I. It would be easy because I'm involved in this industry to say that, you know, by bringing tourists to a place, it's it's all positive. Like everything you do is positive by bringing um, tourists to Afghanistan. We you do both. You normalize a I think this is the word that I, I, I stick to. You normalize the country. And in doing that, you normalize, you know, any interaction between countries um, between people of countries normalizes it. If all we ever went on is um, is just news reports, people in the UK would look at the US and just think, you know, every day, every school gets shot up and there's just people, you know, whatever. We'd just see what's on the news. If you just saw what was on the UK news, you'd just see what's on that. But because people in the UK and the US, we know each other, we share culture, we share um, music and films and people have visited each other's countries. We know there's much more going on than that. So that is exactly the same um, which is happening if we, when we bring tourists to Afghanistan. And in a way that does normalise the regimes we work in. It makes them more nuanced. It makes them more... Um, and it, 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 yeah, it makes them more normal. And we're not blind to that fact. But when we do organise tourism... We try to accentuate, yeah. You know, we try and make sure that the positives, as much as possible, outweigh the negatives. And so we're not here in any of the countries we go to to say the regime, you know, the, the governments there are are correct. And if there's anything that uh, they do, that should be pointed out, and that should be pointed out by journalists, and that should be pointed out by um, the people that report on it. But. We also believe that um, a way forward is to engage and engage through tourism. And under the previous government in Afghanistan, um, we helped develop um, ski tourism. We helped put together, help organize the, the first mixed gender sporting event in the country. We helped train the first female tour guide. We helped do things which we felt were beneficial to Afghanistan as a whole. How we work under the current government, I don't know. But we would look to engage and we would look to try and find ways which would be positive. And I think at the moment that's they're not particularly popular and that's possibly not a very popular um, outlook. But um, that's the only way we know how to do things is to organise tourism, is to try and put on trips that are both um, positive for the for the guests that we guide, but also positive for the communities we go go to. And the only way we work out the best ways to be positive, the communities we go to, is to continue to do tourism and to engage and to take people around. So in answer to your question, it's both. We, we're not blind that tourism and bringing people halfway across the world to have some fun has negative aspects. But we want to try and, um, if people are going to do it, we want to try and make as positive as possible for everyone. It's kind of like you have to operate under the guiding principle that tourism in general is a force of good and that you're always going to be dealing with a wide variety of different governments and political situations and some ethical concerns, but that you can't necessarily let those ethical concerns or each 
individual political situation govern whether or not tourism is good and just work with what you have and try to do the most good that you can. And yeah, and to support initiatives, to support people that want to do stuff that's uh, that, that's that, that, that's new and and beneficial. And yeah, absolutely. It, it, this is what we do. So we want to try and make it as positive as possible. And, and do you think tourism can change more than just a person, a tourist perception of a place? Obviously, someone who's never gone to Afghanistan before, just see it on the news, is going to have their minds opened to what that place is like when they go there but can it also physically improve a place can tourism actually alter the conditions for people living there kind of along the lines of what you were saying about you know organizing the ski uh the ski thing and training people like fatima so is there a physical benefit to tourism that is kind of part of your goal and should be part of tourism's goal I think it should be part of tourism goal. Tourism's goal on a on a macro level. Now, I, I us at Untamed Borders, I I think we we sit on kind of the very fringes of tourism. I mean, like we do what we do, um, right. but absolutely. I mean, you look at somewhere like Nepal. I think it's like a quarter or a third of their GDP comes from tourism, and a lot of that is done in a positive way. Some of it's done in a less positive way for small. Um, beautiful mountainous countries like Afghanistan, that is a potential way forward. Um, and it's a potential way to um, practically improve people's life through tourism. Because of the places we work, we're never going to bring... Of course, we, we help support a number of people and their families through the work that we do, but it's a fairly small amount uh, on, a, on a national level. However, I think that some of the the way we work can make people look at their own countries in a slightly different way. When we helped organize the marathon of Afghanistan, seeing 25, 30 international people going there and having so much fun um, to in a place where the majority of international people that people in that part of Afghanistan had seen were development workers or soldiers has a positive impact that people have come to your country because it's, it's really beautiful. And because there's, um, amazing things to see and not because it's messed up or because it's dangerous. So I think bringing tourism to a place that has seen a lot of conflict and a lot of trauma is, again, it normalizes it. It shows that um, that country and that place has beauty and has um, value and isn't just a place to be pitied or supported. It's a place to be enjoyed. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we can bring to places um, is that feeling as much as any kind of financial uh, benefit, if that makes some sense. Right. And how? what's the first step then in getting started with something like that? If, if you're considering with Untamed Borders bringing a ski tour or, or, or a cultural trip to a place you've never worked before, what's the scouting like? What, is the, what, what needs need to be met before you're willing to take people there? It depends. I mean, you've got, you've got, um, sometimes you've got a country that used to have a tourism industry and then didn't for some reason, you know, because of a conflict or something like that. So there's a potential to tap into the, the people that used to previously work. There's a potential to tap into people that work for development organizations. There's a temp, you could tap into people that work with uh, conflict media. Uh, you can tap into other organizations that understand a little bit about safety and also not just the safety of themselves, but of the safety of looking after international people in the area. 
So these are people to start like uh, reaching out to. Um, there's also other organizations that for different reasons understand a little bit about um, safety and security. And that can be, um, depending what's what's happening there, it can be um, um, organizations that just provide security reports for um, for organizations, for business people, for whoever. And you just build up a picture, a security picture and also a capacity picture. And then, yeah, if it looks good enough, maybe one of our team will go out and visit or we will, if we feel it's more secure, we might do a recce trip and bring out uh, a small group of people that we've traveled with us before. And that's usually the kind of stages of, um, of, of, of scouting a place and, and wanting to go there. We're going to take a short break from the interview for a word from our partners at Matador Network. Are you a travel writer, filmmaker, or an influencer who loves to travel the world for free? Check out creators.matadornetwork.com and explore one of our many press trips. Sign up for free. That's creators.matadornetwork.com. Happy travels. And now back to the interview. I'm thinking about what we were talking about earlier about Saudi Arabia and how they're kind of emerging from being a hard to reach inaccessible destination to now investing a lot of money in tourism and it becoming more of a mainstream place people want to go and it's really my only experience with being somewhere that is or was untamed uh in last spring i went to uh, neom the new region they're developing for tourism how does how does that approach differ so what saudi arabia is doing is they're investing billions of dollars into developing a tourism resort area out of nowhere how does that approach differ i guess from creating attractions using a vast amount of wealth versus crafting these tours which is what you're doing based on kind of what's already there, working with what you have. Afghanistan's not going to be investing billions of dollars in tourism anytime soon. How did the two tourism experiences differ? Um, yeah, I mean, look, an example of us sort of doing our own kind of thing. In like the last trip we did, there's a, there's a place called the Minaret of Jam in the middle of Afghanistan. It's, it's about 14 hours drive from the nearest bit of paved road in either direction. And we... With our group that we took out last time, we took a bunch of like tents and, and mattresses and, and some cooking equipment and stuff like that. And we camped there. And I don't think anyone's camped there, visited it and camped there um, for probably, I don't even know, 20 years. Uh, any international people have done it. And so in our way, that's us <laughs> doing our neon. That's us creating something slightly different, slightly new that everyone's going to enjoy. Um, in a pretty lo-fi way. I mean, tourism feels like an industry, whereas for us, it's about like trying to um, craft like experiences and not experiences that, not even craft experiences. Ours are just trying to frame experiences. Like Neom is trying to create, create something that is an experience. The experience of Afghanistan is there. All we have to do is try and like navigate people through it and just sit them down and just be like, this is Afghanistan. Here's a framework for what you're seeing. Like we're not we're not creating much. We're just um, plonking people down in front of something that's already amazing. And how do you guys handle it? you're planning a trip and a State Department warning pops up right before? Is that you know it could be from UK or from the US or potentially even from the, the destination country uh, if if they have the infrastructure to do that in their government? Does that change things? 
or or do you guys does that not shift plans? Um, the, the state department or the FCO, like or the you know whatever the, uh, government warnings are not the barometer of us assessing security risks. It's not that we would ignore it, but it is a. I mean, we can't. I mean, there's a number of places we guide in which they are the you know there are state department and FCO warnings against travel. Um, they're a pretty good. If you've no idea about Central African Republic and you've never, you didn't even know it was a country, that is a great place to start, the State Department information, because it's, it's but it's, it's painted in very broad brushes. And it's not a nuanced um, uh, piece of information. And it's, it's because it's there for a purpose. It's there to inform people that don't know much about the country, don't work in the country, don't have access to other, other forms of information, other um, data, other experiences to assess whether it's a safe place to travel. So I'm not knocking these things, but that isn't our barometer of whether we can run a trip or not. And often we've had to cancel or amend trips for pieces of pieces of security data information that doesn't you, you don't read about, you don't see it. And then there's other piece, there's other things that happen that are front page news around the world and. It really doesn't affect what we do that much because they are the kind of incidents that we expect. You know, we expect there to be um, in the next 12 months, someone firing some rockets at the U.S. embassy in the green zone in Baghdad. We're expecting there to be a bomb, sadly, in a, in a Shia area of Kabul in the next six months. So there are certain things that are, have happened and we expect them to continue and we work around that. And those are the things that often end up on the in the news. But we can manage, you know, we can we feel we can manage the security on that. But sometimes there might be a, an illegal checkpoint appear on a road that we've been using for ages, and that completely kiboshes half of a trip. And it's not even report, you know, you won't find a report on it anywhere. But we will get the information about it. So, yeah. Earlier, I noted I'm visiting Kyrgyzstan in February, and there is a State Department warning there now. Uh, and I, the tour operator that I'm traveling with sent out a warning that was like, look, like, don't let this scare you off. It's on the other side of the country. Literally, we will not even be seeing anyone that has interacted with the conflict that happened on the border. Uh, and in fact, you will probably gain culturally from interacting with Russians that are dodging the draft and hanging out in Bishkek right now. Like, this is, this is actually going to enhance the experience of your trip rather than deter it. I mean, yeah, I, I, again, uh, I mean, as an example, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a border conflict between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. Um, and I'm assuming the State Department, you know, puts a color on the whole country. And that, you know, that, that is not likely to affect uh, one. But of course, the State Department also has a responsibility to its citizens, some of whom don't have the nuanced information that your tour operator has. And so they've got to paint things in a broad brush. They've got to paint things in a in an understandable brush. And so, yeah, I don't knock the State Department's information. It's just, it, it is what it is. Uh, you just have to interpret it and you just have to accept it for what it is. And if you've got other sources of information, you know, take them on board as well. So the other day I was made aware of the State Department's Travel advisory for Somalia, which reading the bullet points is pretty shocking. It says, draft a will, discuss a plan with loved ones for your funeral proceedings and funeral wishes, uh, establish personal security plans. And this is just for just visiting Somalia. Is that common 
more or less, maybe not that extreme in the places that you take people to. And I'm uh, imagining that you can't just cast that kind of a thing aside or take it with a grain of salt, but you have to look into exactly where the danger really lies. But would that kind of a thing make Somalia an attractive destination for <laughs> untamed borders or kind of uh, cross it off the list? I mean, we, 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 we guide people in, in Somalia on a, on a regular basis. I mean, there's, there's two things. One is, I mean, it's quite... Obviously, they, 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 you know, they're riding that for, for some uh, dramatic effect. You've also got to understand that the people writing those uh, reports are also, if not the people, but certainly uh, connected to the people who have to pick up the pieces should someone go over, should an American go over to Mogadishu and get themselves into trouble. So, of course, right. they're not going to like, what's the benefit of um, the U.S. State Department saying, actually, it's not as bad as you think it is, because mm-hmm. the same people or the same department are going to have to sort sort this out when you're stuck in Mogadishu and you've got into trouble. So, of course, and it's quite right. I think there should be a deterrent. I think there should be a deterrent for people going to Mogadishu because there are risks there. Uh, there are severe risks there. Um, we It's one of the few places that we travel um, whenever we're outside the accommodation with um, personal security, uh, we travel with four uh, four armed um, security for for a group of th- a maximum of three uh, three three guests, and it's also a place where whatever your accommodation, uh, there is a risk. There is no low prof- profile accommodation that international people can stay in in Mogadishu. Every hotel potentially has uh, politicians meeting there. It's a very common thing that politicians meet in hotels for business, for discussing. So everyone, every hotel that we stay in potentially um, is a high profile target. And so with that in mind, I'd say it's probably the highest risk place that we work. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that State Department information is... It's it's wise for them to try and put people off. I mean, that's not a yeah, right. That's yeah. not a bad thing to say. It, it's a little bit. It's a little bit. Um, you know, it's a little bit dramatic about drafting the will. Um, I, I mean, they don't really care. I mean, the U.S. government doesn't care whether you've sorted a good will out or not. Surely, it's not their business. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I think uh, it's understandable why they're writing that. And if you're the kind of person who would sign up for a trip to Mogadishu, that kind of danger, that kind of risk is probably part of the appeal to you anyway. I, I don't know what it is. I think that for people that, that, that don't, have, don't travel to the places that we work in, the idea that this kind of uh, buzz from the risk is something that most people are into is not I don't I don't see it as, as as being that true. It's not like you know if you want to buzz, if you do a bungee jump or something, do you know what I mean? Pretend to kill yourself and gets bounced back up by a big rubber band because that's scary. That's like really getting in an adrenaline buzz. Going to the places that we go, generally nothing happens, and that's the reality. Like it's it's generally nothing happens. If something happens, it's big, um, and but generally you won't see anything. I think it is the attraction of going somewhere that isn't seen through the prism of um, of tourism and, and conflict places and post-conflict places are super dynamic. Like things are changing all the time. Like sure. an election, you think elections in the US are exciting. I mean, an election in Somalia, you don't know if the place is just going to go to anarchy, like real anarchy. I know you guys had your stuff in uh, 
the capital building and stuff like that. But I mean, that's 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 what it is. But like you're working in places like it can change, like the Taliban can take over overnight. Like it's it's really uh, the, the 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 political and the cultural dy- dy- dynamics are so changeable. It's those kind of things that I think people find interesting rather than, you know, getting a buzz from going somewhere that's got a high security risk. Well, now that we've sold everyone on going to Mogadishu, we can uh, we can close out. <laughs> James, thanks again for being on with us. Where can people find you and sign up for one of your trips? They can. Uh, the website is www.untamedborders.com. And you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Untamed Borders. Uh, you can see some of the stuff we're doing. And then, yeah, just mail us and, uh, and uh, we'll set you up with something. Great. Thanks a lot, James. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to No Blackout Dates. Make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us, of course, a five-star review. And if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to, I'm EvanFlow underscore on Instagram, and he's TimWinger1. Also, a big shout-out and thanks to our producer Alex Halkey, executive producer Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru Kelsey Wilking, Matador Social Crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week.